Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 128. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Have you turned your key and heard that dreaded tick, 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 tick because of a dead battery? No worries. I've got the NOCO Genius Boost Jump Starter. This compact tool fits in your glove box and features rechargeable lithium battery technology that will start a dead battery in your car, boat, truck, or RV. It packs a whopping 12-volt, 400-amp starting power and can start up to 20 dead batteries on a single charge. Plus, it has built-in spark-proof technology with reverse polarity protection to safely jumpstart your vehicle. The compact, ergonomically designed clamps are solid copper for maximum conductivity, and there's a built-in ultra-bright dual LED flashlight with seven modes, including an SOS emergency strobe. It's easily rechargeable with a USB outlet, and you can charge your smartphone or tablet while you're on the road. Works on any 12-volt lead-acid battery. The Genius Boost from NOCO is the ultimate emergency tool that's safe and easy to use. Quality design, state-of-the-art technology from NOCO, your battery care source since 1914. Get yours at GeniusChargers.com. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. Today, I'm really excited to introduce a very special guest, Dale LaFollette. Dale, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride I'm absolutely ready. Let's go. All right. It's great to have you here. Dale LaFollette was the track manager at the Portland International Raceway for 27 years and oversaw up to 500 events a year for IMSA races, motocross, drag racing, police training, vintage racing, and a whole lot more. He started selling racing photographs and metal sculptures through galleries while he was at the track in the 70s and 80s. And during that time, he started a mail-order catalog business titled Vintage Motor Photo. When the internet came along, he jumped on board, and he sold through his website and eBay. For over 20 years, he's been a member of the nominating committee for the Motorsports Hall of Fame. He's on the board of advisors for the World of Speed Museum that opens in Wilsonville, Oregon, in April 2015. So, Dale, I've told our listeners just a little bit about you. Would you please take some time and share a little bit more about your history, your business, your interests, and of course, your passion for automobiles. Sure. Be happy to, Mark. I think my passion for automobiles started when I was a kid, like a lot of us. Mine was based on the fact that my parents didn't have a car. It wasn't a money thing. My father was part of the generation that lived through the Depression. And with a bus line a block from our house and trains available and so on and so forth, he just didn't see the need. That drove me crazy because all the kids I knew, their parents had a car and they went places in it and so on, that I never got to go to. The first car in the family came on board when I was 15, I think. Mm -hmm. My mother took driving lessons absolutely forever, it seemed, and finally (laughs) learned how to drive. And then she was going to teach me how to drive. And of course, I had read all sorts of things and and sat in cars and shifted the gears and so on and so forth in in friends' cars. And so consequently, she put me in the car to drive and I drove it around the block and parked in front of the house and 
said, you know, I'm ready to go. Yeah, <laughs> let's go. She, she was a little nonplussed about all that. but uh, well, Of course. Uh, so anyway, cars meant freedom to me. Then when I was about 15 years old, which would have been 53, 54, along in there, I uh, happened upon a road and track magazine. I purchased it in Montevilla at Dixon's Drugstore, brought it home, read it cover to cover, and found out that there were cars made in other countries. There was races going on in other countries on road courses, and it just blew my mind. Yeah, It just opened up a whole new world to me, and instantly I started looking for racing events locally. There was an oval track here in Portland, and I went to a lot of races there, and then I found out about uh, a road race at Tulnick, Oregon. My girlfriend and I drove down there, and... Uh, well, it was over as far as I was concerned. I was totally in love, <laughs> and uh, road racing was my passion. About that same time in Road and Track magazine, there were ads for uh, various books that uh, covered that subject. And so I started buying books. My collecting of books has gone on today. In fact, I, <laughs> I have to admit, I'm just dragging home yet another book a couple of days ago. Yeah. I went into business after college, and I um, owned a couple of businesses, and I worked for other people and so on, but I, I just hadn't found my passion that way. And a friend of mine told me that the manager position at uh, Portland International Raceway was about to open up. I applied, and uh, they accepted my application, made me the manager in uh, 1973. PIR was never really built. Uh, nobody went out there and said, well, we're going to build a racetrack, and we're going to put the building over there, and the restrooms are going to be over here, and the concession stands are going to be over here. It was basically the abandoned roads of Vanport, which was a housing development that was flooded out in 1940. Seven. Huh. So the original races were on the old roads of, of Vanport. Uh -huh. First Rose Cup race was 1961, and I went out and uh, dug post holes um, and for the, with the JCs and uh, could not believe that they were actually going to have a race half an hour from my house. <laughs> First Rose Cup happened. Uh, I was there in attendance. And you know, looking back on it, I can't believe we got away with it because it was highly dangerous. Uh, the ground around the track was not improved. There was old foundations, and there was a, it was just a horror. Mm -hmm. uh, when I came on board in 73, some of those problems had been solved. The rest of them were mine to solve. Anyway, we built the racetrack over the years. Our first IndyCar race, a kart race, was 1984. That was a highlight of my life, I can tell you, because we spent a miserable wet winter getting the track ready in the way of concrete barriers and things like that. I don't think I ever worked so hard in my life <laughs> to see, uh, I think, the first car out in practice in 84 for, the, for our cart uh, race was Mario Andretti. Nice. And I was in my office and I couldn't go outside because I had tears in my eyes. <laughs> it was a um, pretty big deal. Yeah. Anyway, we did Trans Am, IMSA, cart, uh, motorcycle road racing, AMA, you know, everything, vintage racing and, and so on. Sure. As I approached retirement time, I thought, wow, I've been very active, very busy. 
I can't picture just going home. Mm -hmm. I've seen daytime television. It was pretty miserable. <laughs> yeah. I thought, well, I'd been in the, in the collectible book business with a couple of friends, and I had sold my share of that. But I thought, I wonder if people loved photography as much as I do. I'd been a photographer my whole life. I'd gone back to college in the early 80s and taken all the uh, photography classes that I could get. So I love photography, and I found some sources uh, for racing photography. I started buying some, and I put a catalog together and uh, mailed it out to a, a mailing list that I actually got from the book business that I'd been in. Mm -hmm. And well, I, people actually bought photographs from me. <laughs> Isn't that cool when that happens? <laughs> yeah, it was a, I, I thought, wow, this is cool. I, I put an ad in the classified section of Auto Week, got some response there. The problem with selling vintage images in a catalog, of course, is you only have one of them, and you put it in a catalog and somebody buys it, and then the next 10 people that want it can't get it. Right. Uh, that was frustrating as heck. My wife and I took a vacation in Scottsdale. While I was down there, I read Money Magazine, and they're telling us about the new thing that uh, eBay had started, uh, called an eBay store. Mm -hmm. When I got home, I signed up for an eBay store. That was 1998. So I've had an eBay store ever since. Uh, I quit making the catalog. Uh, I sell my photographs all over the world. I travel to Europe at least once a year to buy photographs. Mm -hmm. The weird part of this whole thing is most of my, my items are road racing from 1895 on up to 1970. Most of them come from Europe, and 60% of them go back to Europe. Uh, <laughs> Isn't that funny? It's a business that I can be as active as I want to be. I enjoy contacting with people. I've, I've sold items to friends and relatives of some very famous people. I've sold photographs to uh, Bernd Rosemeyer, to um, Lance Reventlow's brother. It's a nice thing, but then I can turn the whole thing off and... and take a trip if I want to, too. Yeah, yeah. This is definitely a retirement hobby business, but um, it does quite well, and it pays for my wife and I to uh, travel quite a bit. Little did you know, all those years at the racetrack, you'd end up uh, playing with racing images the rest of your life, so I think it's fantastic. As we continue on your journey, I always like to start with a success quote, and this is a saying that's been instrumental in forming your life and your success. It's a great way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars Yeah. So, Dale, take the wheel. I read That Certain Sound. It's a book about, about uh, John Wire, who was the manager for Aston Martin and then the Porsche 917s and then finally the Ford GTs at Le Mans. Mm -hmm. There was a quote in there that stuck with me. At one time, I had it on my wall at the office at uh, PIR. It supposedly comes from Hemingway, although I don't know that to be a fact. And it says, every damn thing is your own fault if you're any good. <laughs> now, there are some, some exceptions to that, obviously. But I think what it's saying is take ownership, good or bad, and then move on. Mm -hmm. Don't spend a lot of time trying to find somebody to blame for your problems. Sure. I think in America, we seem to look sometimes for the fall guy. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think what we need to really do 
and say, okay, we're all a part of this. Maybe I screwed up, but now we're, we're going forward. Yeah. Oh, it's a great quote. I love that. I haven't heard that one. So that's a new one here on Cars. Yeah. Wonderful. Would you tell us a story that instigated your passion for cars, a, a pivotal moment in your life when you really knew you were a car guy? My first car was a was a Morris Minor, which, looking back on it, it was wonderful. I had a great time with that car and so on. On the other hand, I used Morris Minor as, as a mistake, no matter how you cut it. <laughs> At that time, there weren't that there were not that many foreign cars around. So consequently, if you had a foreign car, you found other people that had foreign cars, and there was um, a lot of camaraderie. And I developed a, a wide relationship with other car people mm-hmm. just because of that car. We had would have parties at our house. There would be Morgans and Porsches and all sorts of things that the neighborhood had never seen before. It was just a really good group of people that I have stayed in contact with uh, my whole life. Yeah. And I think that's uh, kind of what uh, uh, inspired me to... Uh, to just get deeper and deeper into the subject. Well, car clubs have become a great way, and they have been for a long time, to make new friends and hang out with folks that have similar likes. And even when they're not the same marks, I found that uh, car people are all kind of the same. They like to talk about cars no matter what. If it rolls on rubber, they love it. And it is a great way to uh, create memories and new friends and find old friends and make friends with people you never, never would have met. So they're a great way to do that. Dale, what I'd love to do now is take a look at some of the roads you've driven down and crawl under the hood a bit and ask you to share a huge challenge or even a great failure that you faced in your career. But more importantly, share with us how you overcame that situation and what you learned from it. When I went to the racetrack to work, you have to understand that the racetrack itself was owned by the city of Portland. And so consequently, they had jurisdiction over what I did. And so it's very, very difficult to run a profit-making enterprise within a municipal system. Mm-hmm. It just, it's a struggle because you're dealing with people all the time that really don't understand your goals <laughs> sure <laughs> at a racetrack if you have a timeline it means something is going to happen on a specific date in the way of an event whether you are ready or not it's going to happen i had convinced a local beer company to build a tower for us which they did and we needed bleachers the city had some bleachers at the facility that were basically unsafe I tore them down and threw them away. I wouldn't. I just would not be a, a party to them. Mm-hmm. And so, consequently, I needed bleachers bad. I, I I knew what I wanted. And if if I was in in the privately in the racetrack business, I probably could have had bleachers in a month. But instead, you got to go through city purchasing and so on and so forth. And it's about a six month procedure. I did all that, and I had five sets of fifteen row bleachers coming. But I I had to get the purchase order passed by the city council, which I did. And I kept asking people, what what do I have to do next? What do I have to do next? And and they said, well, you have to go up to the commissioner's office and make sure the commissioner signs off on that purchase order. Then it has to go to purchasing. And they will finally issue the final purchase order. I said, great. So I went up to the commissioner's office and waited around and, and had the commissioner 
uh, sign the, the purchase order, and I went streaking down to purchasing, and I handed it to her, and I said, I need this purchase order completed so that I can buy these bleachers. And she said, yeah, no problem. And she grabbed it, and she put it on the bottom of about a five-inch stack of pieces of paper. I had an event coming up. Uh, actually, it was a drag race in about four weeks, and this was not going to work. Mm-hmm. So right alongside her her desk was a chair, and I sat down. And in about two minutes, she turned to me, and she said, what are you still doing here? I said, I'm waiting for my purchase order. And she said, well, uh, I've got to go through this whole stack, and it will probably be in the middle of next week. She said, well, you know, I don't have another thing to do until I get those bleachers. So I'm going to sit here, and I will go home at 5 o'clock, like you do, and I will be here at 8 o'clock in the morning when you come in. And I sat there. And in about three minutes, she picked up the pile, removed my request, filled out the purchase order, and handed it to me without a word. <laughs> that was my, my first real challenge personally with how other people think and operate and so on yeah. in, a, in a bureaucracy like that. And I could see that... Um, I have. I was going to have to do a lot of pre-planning to make all this work. Oh goodness, yeah. Well, oh geez, I can, I can relate in many ways, but I don't even want to go down that path today. It's too painful. Let's shift. <laughs> let's shift gears here and go to the other end of the spectrum and ask you to share a story when you had a real aha moment, a time when you realized that you had an idea or a concept that you thought, hey, this is really going to make it, and tell us the steps you took to turn that aha moment into a success. Probably it's based around traveling with the photographs. When I first went into the business, matted the photographs. I kept hearing along the way that a lot of people didn't really care about the mats because they they saved they collected their photographs in binders and and so on. Uh, I went to a lot of vintage races and and sold photographs there, and it was impossible to sell photographs out of a box. You have to have them so that they can be picked up and handled, and yet you can't let people just handle a plain photograph because by the end of the day, they'll all be kind of worn out. I spent an inordinate amount of time matting photographs, and it's not a a pleasant task. I'm fairly decent at it, but it's not a pleasant task. So I was doing shows down in California, and some of the shows were really, really good, and some of them were bad, and some of them were horrid. I did vintage races. In fact, I did the vintage race up by you, Mark, uh, in Seattle. Oh, the Sovereign races. Yeah, uh, that was a great race to go to. You know, after a while, there was enough bad ones mixed in with the good ones that I thought, you know, matting photographs takes X amount of time a lot of times it was summer months, and if you live in Oregon and Washington, summer months are pretty precious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Sitting at a table matting photographs in the summer months is probably not the, the smart thing to do. So we had a bad couple of shows in California, and I told my wife, you know, I can be fooled once, but the second time it's going to be my fault. And so consequently, we have become an internet business only. Ah, yeah. And so I quit matting photographs. It reduced my costs in mailing. It freed up a lot of time. It cut my gross by 
at least a third. Wow. It increased my, my net by about 50%. There you go. <laughs> well, you know, it goes back to the beginning of your story. People were saying, yeah, I don't really need the mat. And so many times in business, if we just listen to our customers, they're telling us what they want and what they need. Exactly. Even when we think they need something more, sometimes they really don't. So that was a great, what a great aha, financial aha as well. You know, I do miss meeting the people. That was always fun because they were as enthusiastic about the subject matter as I am. Mm -hmm. I made a lot of friends that way that I really still have today and uh, really enjoy. How about proudest career moments? Is there one in particular? You've probably had many, but one in particular you could share with us? The IndyCar people at the race asked all racetracks to build tire barriers basically around, except for on the straightaways, at virtually every corner. And in some instances, they wanted two and three rows of tire barriers. We've all been to racetracks where the tire barriers are kind of coming apart and the tires are kind of sloughing down and they're there's all sorts of problems with tires uh, as a barrier. If you don't cut holes in them, they retain water. And if they retain water, they grow mosquitoes. Mm -hmm. And you're inviting people to spend uh, afternoons and evenings at your racetrack and being swarmed by mosquitoes is not a good thing. So I was really perplexed by this. We did have tire barriers, and I'm afraid our tire barriers look like everybody else's tire barriers, a little sloppy. And so I went to Silverstone in England and uh, met with the manager there, and he showed me their tire barriers and so on. And I brought home what I learned, and they were screwing the tires together with self-tapping screws and nuts and, and washers. I thought, well, that's all well and good, but if you tear up a barrier in one location, you're going to have to have somebody out there for 45 minutes restacking tires and screwing them back together. And, you know, during a race, especially a televised race, that's, that isn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. So my maintenance guy and I sat down and we designed a barrier with tires. And what we did first off in one side of the tire, we cut free one inch holes so they drain water. Mm-hmm. And then we screwed them together like they do, uh, they do in Europe except we put three stacks up against two stacks and screwed all of them together. But then we took those barriers and moved them. If you can see, the ends were at an angle, and so they stacked like, um, not like bricks, but uh, they overlapped. And we tied those together with strapping material. And so we could go in in 15 minutes and replace a uh, 12-foot section of barrier uh, with a forklift and uh, strap it down. And the best part of screwing tires together, as opposed to using strapping, is the tires are not under tension. So you can, you can walk up to them and stick your foot into the barrier 8 or 10, 12 inches. So when it comes to things like motorcycles and so on and so forth, Sometimes the, the motorcycle rider is not with the bike anymore. Right. And so he's going to run into that barrier with his body. And having a, a soft barrier like that that will move because they're free they're freestanding uh, is uh, very, very important. And as luck would have it, right after we developed our barriers, 
CART came out to look at them and approve them. Not only approved them, they shipped one bundle of our barrier to General Motors for testing. Oh, cool. And General Motors came back and said, these uh, barrier like this could really be used on highways. Also, right after that, we had a uh, Sports 2 race at the racetrack. One of the racers, his mother was at the at Turn 1 taking video. There was a police officer came in off the highway with a radar gun, and he wanted to see how fast the cars were going, asked permission to go down there and radar the cars, which we gave him. And he was sitting right or on his motorcycle right next to this lady that had the video camera. Mm-hmm. And her son came out of the last turn onto the straightaway, didn't realize it, that he had a leak in his hydraulic brake system, and he had pumped all the fluid out of his master cylinder. Uh-oh. He got to turn one at 138 miles an hour, and we had the video of it because mom was taking the video. He got there at 138 miles an hour because that's what the policeman told me he was going. And he went straight off the racetrack. He traveled about 100 feet on grass, which obviously didn't slow him down, and he hit the barrier. Mm -hmm. The barrier moved about 10 feet, the first barrier. There was three barriers there about 10 feet apart. When it was all said and done, he broke the front suspension. He crushed the front body. The crush box had a little dimple in it. It didn't even crush. Mm. He stepped out of the car and... He repaired the car and was racing it the next weekend. Very cool. We sent that video to CART. We sent it to uh, other racetracks. And I think we were visited by about six other racetracks that wanted to know how we built our barriers and the technique we used and so on and so forth. And I can honestly say that I know we saved lives. That was probably one of my proudest moments. Oh, absolutely. Fantastic story. Let's have a little fun here. What was your first really special car? And could you share a memory you had with that vehicle? Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the memory I have is, is the struggle in getting it. It was a uh, Alfa Romeo Giulietta Coupe. Mm-hmm. The gentleman that was the technical director for CART was a gentleman by the name of Kirk Russell. In my office, I had a poster for a rally. And the poster featured a a painting, I believe, or a photograph of an Alfa Romeo. Kirk came in my office to talk, and he went over to that poster and was looking at it. And he tapped on it with his finger, and he said, I've got an Alfa. I said, really? What kind? He says, a Julietta Coupe. Hmm. I said, really? I've been looking for one of those. I said, where is it? He says, it's in my dad's garage in... uh, New Jersey. And I said, really? He said, yeah. I said, well, are you interested in selling it? He said, well, I probably should. And he says, it's kind of a part. But uh, so I said, well, I'm interested. He says, well, you're going to be on the East Coast at all. And I said, well, I'm going to go to Hershey. I'm going to the swap meet at Hershey. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, it's about 45 minutes away. And I said, perfect. So I went to Hershey, gathered up two of my buddies. One of them is restores cars professionally. Mm-hmm. And I took them and I thought, well, you know, Tom, his name is Tom. And, and I thought, well, Tom is going to tell me this is a real dog and don't bother. 
we opened this garage. It hadn't been opened probably in 20 years. The car was piled full of stuff and, and so on. And, and uh, Tom got underneath it and opened the trunk and opened the hood and so on and so forth and looked at the doors. And he said, you know, this is about the driest alpha I've seen in 20 or 30 years. And I said, oh, God, I'm going to have to buy it. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, you know, how am I going to get it home? So uh, I called Kirk the next day and I said, okay, we got a deal and, and we, we worked out a price. And, and I came home and I told Kirk that, well, you know, next spring I'll have it figured out by then and, and I'll come get it and uh, tow it home. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine said, well, you know, I've got an old uh, four-wheel drive Ford Bronco. And if you're going to go back there, it tows trailers real nice and it'd be a good car for you to use because I didn't have anything suitable. So I said, well, that was really nice. And so the guy that owned the driving school at the racetrack, he said, well, I've got a trailer and it's got a, uh, it's, it's an open trailer, but it's got a, a buffer up, up front so that cars don't get sandblasted and all that. So mm-hmm. he says, you can take the trailer if you want. My assistant at the racetrack said, well, I'll go with you. I'll help. And I said, well, you know, we're going to have to swap off driving, so there's got to be at least three of us. I, you know, we just two of us can't go back there. So I called a friend of mine in Alaska. You maybe heard of him, Satch Carlson. <laughs> and yes. Satch, uh, I, Satch didn't answer, so I said, Satch, road trip, and hung up. And I got a call back, and he left a message on my phone. He said, when? <laughs> and so I called him back and said, well, it looks like we're going to leave the 1st of November. Satch showed up, and we took off. Well, there was a blizzard in Montana that I just had never seen anything like. We persevered because we had four-wheel drive. In Omaha, we had to go to a car wash and remove about 1,500 pounds of ice off the trailer because the mileage had just gone sure. <laughs> right in the toilet. <laughs> and so we finally got back there. The engine was out of the car and the engine was apart. So we went around and gathered up all the parts. And we went from Portland, Oregon to the east side of New Jersey, probably 200 miles from the Atlantic Ocean, and back to Portland, Oregon with one night in a hotel in five days and seven hours. Hmm. <laughs> it was an endurance contest. So anyway, we get it home, and uh, Tom paints it for me, and I work on parts of it, and so on and so forth. And I came to the conclusion, another aha moment, I am not a car restoration guy. Hmm. It was driving me crazy. I felt an obligation. I felt I had to go out there and work on that car, and I was not enjoying myself. So I quit doing it. Uh, ultimately, I sold a car to a friend who restored it, and it's absolutely beautiful. And he has since given it to his son-in-law. They enjoy it. I get to visit it, <laughs> and, and that is just about perfect. But when I retired, I had a duetto at the same time, and I sold both Alphas and bought a Boxster because I wanted a safe car that I could drive every day. Mm-hmm. I wasn't going to have to go back and forth to work on the freeway and, and so on and so forth. I was uh, er, Everything I do now is because I want to do it. 
And uh, uh, so I wanted a, a car that I really enjoyed driving and, like I say, was more modern and had the latest safety features. And uh, so I put 100,000 miles on my first Boxster and uh, sold it and bought another one. And uh, I'm driving the second one now. And uh, every time the bad weather comes and I leave it in the garage for a little while, I think, well, that's probably foolish to own that car. I should probably... And then I drive it on a nice day, and uh, I fall in love all over again. Of course. <laughs> They're fun cars. How about seller's remorse? Is there a vehicle that you've let go that you really wish you could have back in your garage? Well, probably the uh, that same Julietta, because I, since I was a kid, I thought Julietta's were just a gorgeous little car. Mm-hmm. Well, here's a funny question for you, Dale. If you were a car, what kind of car would Dale be? And why? I have two favorite cars that I have seen. Probably uh, a Bugatti Atlantic would Ooh. be right at the top of my list. I, I just can't. I love art. I love sculpture. And that is uh, just a wonderful sculpture. Yeah, it is a work of art. Those are fantastic. Okay, Dale, we're up to what I call the last lap, and this is where I fire off a series of questions, and you give our listeners some very quick blips of the throttle answers. So are you ready? You bet. What's the best automotive advice you've ever received? I had a friend that worked for Saab. He was uh, an engineer for them and traveled around and to the dealerships and so on. He was allowed to sell his driver, the car that Saab supplied him, and so I would buy it. Mm-hmm. I bought three of them from him. When I bought the first one, he put his arm on my shoulder and he said, now listen, I don't want you to own this car past 40,000 miles. <laughs> and he was so true. He so was happy. right. <laughs> Very good. How about personal habits? Could you share one of your personal habits that you believe has contributed to your success? Well, I think artistically, I'm a photographer myself and I don't show people my photographs unless they are photographs that I believe in. In other words, back in the film days, we all took 36 fo- photographs on a roll of film. And it's a, it's a huge mistake to show anybody all 36. There <laughs> so, might be one in there that's really good. Yeah, it's like looking at the family pictures, the trip. It's like another shot of grandma on the slide. Oh. Exactly. Exactly, exactly. And way too many artists show everything. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, being a good editor when it comes to photography is one of the most most positive virtues. Sure. Yeah, okay. That's good. How about a resource? Is there one in particular that you could share with the Carja listeners that you really like? Maybe a website or maybe a blog that you get? a place you can just lose yourself in and disappear down the rabbit hole, as they say, mm-hmm. is uh, the Clementaski collection. Oh, yeah. Peter Sachs is the guy that owns it, and he has purchased the negatives from close to a dozen different photographers, and they're the, they're the best of the best. Um, I was very privileged to know Louis Clementaski myself, and... I know a couple of other people that he owns their photographs. And there's just some stunning images there. Peter will make you, as a collector, if you're not going to publish it and so on, he will make you a print 
very, very reasonably. You can have a genuine Klementowski on your wall or uh, an Edward Eves or uh, Eve DeBrain or uh, just all sorts of top-line photographers from the 30s right on up to uh, modern times. That is a great site. I've got several of his prints as well, so it's a wonderful resource. How about books? I know you have a huge library, but if you could just share one book with our listeners, what would that be? Well, I'm going to share three because one is just is the photography, one is research, and one is just a great read. Okay. The great read, if you want to read just a wonderful book, it's called Race of the Century, mm-hmm. and it's written by Julie Fenster. And it is about the 1908 New York to Paris race. Mm -hmm. And if you read Seabiscuit, this is the automotive version. (laughs) It's a great, great book. If you're doing research on racing, my most valuable tool is eight volumes of a book called A Record of Grand Prix and Virtuette Racing by Paul Sheldon. Mm. And it, there's no photographs. So it could be boring to some people, mm-hmm. but it has a listing. And my eight volumes start in 1900 and go to 1969. Wow. And every open wheel road race. It's a fabulous series of books. Probably one of the greatest photo books ever. It's Touring Superleggera, uh, The Giant Among Classic Italian Coach Builders by Carlo Felice Bianchi. It is photographs taken with an 8x10 camera for the most part of Turing's production from the very beginning. I can sit with this book and just look at one gorgeous car after another. It is <laughs> absolutely fabulous. Ah, fantastic. Well, I'll remind our listeners that we'll put all of these great resources up at carsyeah.com slash Dale LaFollette. And his last name is L-A-F-O-L-L-E-T-T. E. You can find everything there at Cars Yeah. All right, Dale, we're up to the checkered flag. And this last question can be a real doozy for some people. If you could only have one collector car in your garage, but money is no object, today I'm going to buy you whatever you would like, what would that one collector car be and why? Well, i got to go back to the Bugatti Atlantic. And the <laughs> reason I have to go back to it is you don't have to drive it to enjoy it. In fact, I think in examining it, one of them closely, I think you'd find that the steering wheel is a little bit close and the cab is a little claustrophobic. So maybe in driving it would not be the greatest experience ever. But if it was in your garage, you'd spend an awful lot of time there. Yeah, I think I'd park that in my living room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if I could get away with it, I would too. <laughs> I might be able to get away with it, a car that beautiful. Yeah, that's a beautiful car. Great choice. Dale, you've taken us on a great ride, and I've really enjoyed your stories. I think we could spend hours talking cars together. I want to thank you for sharing your life with me and the Car GL listeners. If you could give us just one parting piece of guidance before you drive off into the sunset in that Bugatti Atlantic, what would it be? <laughs> Visit my website. <laughs> yes. Okay. And let's uh, let the listeners know, what is your website? VintageMotorPhoto.com. Yeah, it's a great site. I spent some time on it this weekend looking through all the wonderful images. Well, listeners, again, you can find these resources and Dale's website at carsyad.com slash Dale LaFollette. You can just put Dale's name in the search bar and it'll take you right there. 
Dale, I want to thank you for being so generous with your time and your expertise and for sharing your experiences with our Cars Yeah listeners and with me. Until we talk again, I'll see you down the road. Okay, Mark. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah.